0: Um, But it's true, Uh, and and we've seen all the different kind of wacky people, you know, saying, Jesus will come back this day, Jesus will come back this day. I think Harold Camping, if you follow him, he missed it again Uh, just recently. It's like, dude, stop. you didn't get it right you're off so um and and people try to do that and sometimes what happens is when people make a prediction of this is when it'll happen jesus come back on this date and it doesn't happen it tends to make us all think that he's never coming back but the reality is he is coming back it's and and we will stand face to face before him either when he returns or when we Die and and face him, and so that should impact how we live, and that's going to be kind of the thrust of this series: is First Thessalonians in light of his coming. How are we to live in light of his coming? And so we're starting with just this introduction, uh, partly to the book. Uh, we'll look really more at the background of the Thessalonians next week. Uh, today we're going to look more um, at this figure, the Apostle Paul. Uh, you see that this letter is from him. In verse one, uh, he says, "Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy." Um, really, uh, a lot of the the, the, the writing, the person behind this is, is Paul. Now, he, Paul always worked with a team, and so it's not surprising that he would include those few people uh, in this greeting. He's writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read about um, the Thessalonians and their background in Acts chapter 17. We'll do some of that next week. Uh, but he, he greets them with, with some words that are really important. And A lot of times when you read the Bible, you just sort of skip over these kind of words. Um, But these words, as we'll see today, meant something deep and significant to the Apostle Paul. He says to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And as we'll unpack today, Paul's life, you'll see that the idea of grace, the idea of unmerited, undeserved favor from God on a person's life was an explosive idea in his life. You also see that the idea of peace, the idea that you could be made right with God, that the hostility that humanity and God have with one another could be resolved and and that that could actually lead to lives of generosity and kindness and peace. We'll see a man who was driven not by grace but by duty and law and ought to become changed radically by the free grace of God. And we'll also see this man who was hostile, who was fighting, who was violent against God and his people become a man of peace. So that's what we want to do today. We're going to actually look at who is the Apostle Paul. If you've been around church at all, or sometimes you'll hear people refer to different books of the Bible, they'll say, as Paul wrote, as Paul wrote. I talked to a guy one time who came to a church and was like, they kept talking about Paul, and I'm like, is Paul here today? Like, who are they talking about? Like, is is that Paul? Is that the guy that did the announcements? Is that Paul? No, no. Paul is the Apostle Paul uh, as described in the scripture. He's described, we'll read his story today in the book of Acts, but he then writes much of the New Testament. Uh, Many of the New Testament letters are written by this key figure, the Apostle Paul. And so we wanted to take some moments to just explain and help us understand who is this guy? As we study this letter, which is one of his most personal and intimate letters, we want to understand who is this guy, what's driving him, what has he experienced that's kind of you know, behind everything that he's going to communicate to us in this book. And So what we want to look at today is Paul's God story. That's what we call it uh, just around here, redemption. That's not the official biblical name. Uh, but when we tell stories about how God's been at work in a person's life or is at work now, we call them God's stories. A lot of times we'll share them up here. You know, one of us will be on a stool or we'll interview or we'll do that kind of thing. You hear God's stories. And uh, generally, when it comes to someone sharing a story of how God got a hold of their life, uh, it tends to follow these sort, of four, uh, these sort of four ideas. And we'll put these on the screen here. Um, the first one is, without Jesus, my life has been marked by blank. So in other words, apart from, apart from Jesus, this is what my life is like. And generally, whatever's in the blank is not particularly good. It's generally a lot of selfishness and a lot of arrogance and a lot of self-sufficiency and a lot of rudeness and a lot of just thinking about number one. Even if it's a really nice person, uh, without Jesus, their life is still generally marked by just an ignoring of God. And so everybody comes into the world like that, the scripture says. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does enough good to please God. The scripture says that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. And so apart from Jesus, our life is marked by things that aren't good. That's true of everybody. But for those who have come to trust and to treasure Jesus, generally they would be able to point to number two, a moment that God took a hold of my life through blank. Be all kinds of stuff. A lot of times it's a particular person who invested relationally or like for me, it's a a neighbor that got involved in my life. We started reading the Bible together. So God took a hold of me through that friendship, through reading scripture, for other people, it'll be, here's a book that someone gave me, or uh, here's something that happened, or an event that I went to, or a camp, or a, a church service, or a, I mean, whatever. God uses these things. A lot of times, it's God dropping a boulder in your life. And saying, you think you can live without me? Let's see you try. And just all the circumstances of life start to unravel. And you start to see how actually desperate you are without God. God uses something. And then you come to see, if you're a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is your treasure. Not just that he's God and you sort of intellectually go, yeah, I guess I'll sign off on him being God. Or not just that, well, I don't want to go to hell, and so if I believe in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. I want to do that. Who wants to go to hell? But saying, Jesus is a treasure to me. Jesus is valuable to me. Jesus is far better than all the other things that I tend to live for when marked by not trusting him. He's better than that. He's my treasure. He's become that for me. And then lastly, Jesus is changing my life in these ways. Jesus continues to change a person's life. Isn't that good news for those of you who are already followers of Christ? See, some of you are here today. This is maybe your first time in church or your first time in church in a while. And uh, maybe you just haven't really been uh, thinking much about the things of God. And, and, my guess is that for some of you in that boat, one of the, the criticisms you would have, probably rightly so, of the church would be a bunch of hypocrites. They think they're right about everything. They look down their noses at everyone, right? You, you, you ever met a, anyone ever met a Christian that kind of was like that? You are lying. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's how it is. But the good news is once you become a Christian, you, you, you still need grace and you still get grace from God and he still keeps changing and transforming you more into the image of his son. And may we never be the kind of Christians that sort of get up on our high horse, but instead may we be people who realize that apart from Jesus, our life is marked by nothing good and it's just his grace and that's all we get, right? So that's kind of what is involved in a story. And so what we're going to get today uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 22, you can start to turn there. It's on page 931 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Uh, What we're going to get today is the Apostle Paul's God story. He's going to share uh, in this moment um, his story. He's going to share really these four things. You'll see all all of these kind of come out in this story as he shares it. Now this is towards the end of the book of Acts. Uh, Towards the beginning is where you you see all kinds of things. He'll refer to some of them. We'll look at some of them today. Uh, By this point in the story, um, the Apostle Paul has become a Christian. He's trusting in Jesus. He's treasuring in Jesus. He's living for Jesus. He's now been sent out by Jesus to uh, share the gospel and to start new churches and to uh, spread the fame in the name of Jesus all over the Roman world. That's what he's been called to do. And at this point in the story, he's back in Jerusalem, which uh, isn't where he was born, but where he lived most of his early life, as he'll, as he'll say here. And he's back in Jerusalem, and there's just a lot of turmoil over his faith in Jesus. And so he gets arrested. There's a whole mob of people, um, you know, stirring up a crowd against him, much like the crowd stirred up uh, things him. Jesus, and, uh, and he asked to speak to the people, and so he speaks to these people, and uh, here's what it says, in uh, starting in verse 1. In this first chunk, what you'll see is Paul's version of, without Jesus, my life is marked by blank. So verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. That was probably Aramaic, uh, the language of the day. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that's Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That sounds like an evil smurf or something, but he was a very prominent, Gargamel, that was it, right, Gargamel, (laughs) Gamaliel. He was a very prominent... A religious teacher, Jewish teacher, teacher in the law, uh, very uh, prestigious, right? If you could apply to the Harvard School of Gamaliel, right, that would be the kind of thing. And he said, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, that's the Old Testament law, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death Now, that's an important thing. Let's pause there for just a moment. What what does he mean when he says, I persecuted this way? And the translators have capitalized way to say something. See, at this point in in, uh, history, they didn't call it Christianity. They definitely didn't call it uh, Catholicism or evangelicalism or any other sort of name like that. What they called it was the way. If you were a Christian, that meant that you were part of the way. Oh, you go, know, the way. That's that's kind of a strange thing. Where's that come from? But glad you asked. It comes from John 14, which is where Jesus says that he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the early disciples grabbed on to that idea, this exclusive claim of Jesus that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And they said, I am part of the way. And so Paul here is saying, uh, just like you, to the crowd, just like you are persecuting me, you're zealous for God like I was, you're persecuting me, I persecuted this way, Christianity, to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here's what he's saying. He's saying my life apart from Jesus was characterized by religious zealousness, persecuting Christians to the point of death in some moments and to the point of arresting and returning them to Jerusalem in other moments. And he did this, it says verse 5, with the approval of the high priest and the whole council of elders of, of Judaism. He had letters authorizing him to do this. This was a sponsored removal, extinguishment of Christians. This is a big deal, and this is what Paul's life was like. Now, at this point in his story, actually, uh, the Apostle Paul went by a different name. Went by the name Saul. And when he becomes a follower of Jesus, uh, God changes his name. That's actually quite common in the scripture. Uh, Simon becomes Peter, uh, those sorts of things. That, That happens in a number of places. And Saul becomes Paul. And when we first meet this individual in the book of Acts, what we see is him doing exactly what he just said he did. And so you don't need to turn there. We'll put this on the screen. In Acts chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7 is when we first meet this individual named Saul who becomes Paul. So you get that? Saul, Paul, same person, all right? Tracking that. And where this takes place is at the end of the stoning of this wonderful man of God named Stephen. Uh, He's being persecuted. He's one of the first uh, key martyrs that are recorded here. He gives this beautiful explanation of how God has worked through all of human history. And it says uh, this at the end of chapter 7. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And stoning, by the way, was not like skipping rocks at him. This was like, let's get as big of a rock as we can legitimately throw and shot put it at him. And, and this was horrible. This was a big, uh, ho- horrible way to die. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, right? you got to take off your jacket if you're going to hurl this stone at somebody. And so the person that they hand their coat to, that they hand their cloak to, the person who is standing back and giving approval to this is who? A young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It sounds a lot like the way Jesus died. Hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why would he do that? If we go back to Acts 22, verse 3... It's because he was raised and brought up and trained according to this strict manner of the law. This understanding of the Old Testament that basically said, if you do all the right things and avoid all the wrong things, God will be pleased with you. Now, that's not the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament is you receive grace and then you follow because God changes your heart and you want to, right? If you look at the Old Testament, the exodus... The Passover occurs before the giving of the law. But the way that the human heart, which is always um, just the default mode of it, is to go towards performance, to go towards duty, to go towards religious zeal. He was raised that way. And so when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and calls the people like him that are the strict manner of the law, those are the Pharisees, and and Jesus calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites. You go and you pray on street corners to be seen by others. You you tithe down to the number of herbs in your garden you give a tenth of, but you've neglected the weighty matters of the law like mercy and justice. And Jesus would say to them things like, You Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're like a grave that's painted beautifully on the outside and inside is filled with dead men's bones and uncleanness. And it's very likely, the, the scripture doesn't say this explicitly anywhere, but if you kind of do the math on the timeline, it's very likely that Saul as a young man being raised in Jerusalem, sitting under Gamaliel, it's very, very likely that Saul heard Jesus preach. It's very likely that Saul saw Jesus heal people and give sight to the blind and raise the dead. And it's very likely that he heard Jesus call him a whitewashed tomb. So it's no wonder that if you kind of put this zeal for religious fervor and doing the right thing... eh, against this idea of Jesus calling me a hypocrite, it makes sense that he got that way. Now, it's interesting, that this little sort of tidbit in verse 3, that he's educated at the feet of Gamaliel, is fascinating, because in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, uh, these, uh, this, ca- this council, these elders and these religious teachers, they're trying to figure out, what do we do? Because they're going, okay, we killed Jesus, he raised from the dead, that's a problem. And now a bunch of people that were scared and were like running away and doing anything to do with them, now they're like pretty like zealous about this whole Jesus thing because they realize he's alive. And they're telling everyone about him. And a lot of times when they tell everyone about him, they like blame us for killing him. And that's probably not going to look very good for us. And so we got we to gotta shut these guys up. We got to silence them. And so they start to, these religious people start to persecute the Christian leaders. They persecute Peter and James and John, John is actually, uh, John, the Lord's brother, is killed. And, uh, and, th- and they persecute these guys. They go after them. And, and yet, you can't keep them down. I mean, Peter's like one of those, like, clown things that you, like, punch it and it just comes back, right? And you punch <laughs> it and it just comes back, right? Before he was, like, hiding in front of a little servant girl ashamed of Jesus. Now he's been empowered by this resurrection, and no matter how many times you hit him, he just comes back. So then what do we do here and it's at that moment in chapter five that gamaliel stands up voice of reason and here's what he says he says guys hey hey, we've had a lot of different times where somebody's risen up and claimed to be like a, a messiah and then they died and then everybody went away like the issue was over and then another person did it and the issue was over and he says listen if we if, if this is nothing, it'll take care of itself. But if this actually is from God and we fight it, we'll be fighting God. And so he actually is kind of this voice of reason. And you have to imagine that Paul, right, just, just imagine this. Paul is this young, hot shot religious leader. You've got to imagine he's sitting on the outskirts of this meeting. And he's listening to this. And he's, you know, zealous. And he hears his mentor, his teacher, say, let's just not do anything. And You just got to imagine him in his youthful pride going, are you kidding me? Camelio, you train me better than this. How can you? Don't do anything. They're saying that Jesus is God. That's blasphemy. They're saying that you don't need the law to have a relationship with God, that you can just... Do it by faith, by trusting in him. How dare you, Gamaliel, right? And so you can just imagine this young man, zealous and angry, and he becomes the equivalent of a terrorist. And this this would be very similar to a radical Islamic terrorist in our sort of day, right? Out to declare jihad on Christianity, Right? I'm not saying that all Muslims are jihadists. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we, we see that kind of example. And so for Paul to become a Christian would be a bit like Osama bin Laden becoming a Christian. Radical. Zealous. And the conversion and the grace is even more radical. So what did God use to begin to open his eyes? Well, we see that in verse 6. God took a hold of his life... Uh, through this, beginning in verse 6, he says, I, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay. Whoa. Right? I mean, can we just say, like that's, like, that's maybe how you'd have to get the attention of a guy like this, right? Like, Bright shining light, knock him off his horse, loud voice, verse 8, and, he, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And you wonder at that moment if maybe flashbacks were going in Paul's mind of the times he heard Jesus speak and teach. If maybe the flashbacks of the time when they were stoning Stephen, and the things are laid at his feet. And his world is getting turned upside down. And notice that Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Well, I thought that Saul was persecuting the Christians. I thought Saul was persecuting the church. No, he's persecuting Jesus. When you persecute Christians, you're really persecuting Jesus. And if any of you are experiencing a kind of persecution or people speaking against you, take heart. They're not speaking against you. They're speaking against him. And Jesus says, you are persecuting me. And Paul says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So they they saw it, they didn't hear hear clearly the, the noise. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Isn't this an amazing picture? Here's this young, strong, zealous man on his way to Damascus, papers in hand, ready to kill and arrest Christians. And instead he's blinded and he has to be led by the hand like a little boy into this city that's what god used god dropped a boulder into his life to help him see how blind he was to help him see how helpless he was to help him see that no matter how zealous he was it didn't matter have you experienced that you had that moment where that happens to you where you realize i'm not all that great if you haven't had that i pray that you would Because only there will you realize, I need Jesus. So what does God use? God uses this miraculous power to strip Paul uh, down to size, to show him who he is. But he also uses uh, somebody else. Look at verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of, of all the Jews uh, who lived there. This is a different Ananias than Ananias and Sapphira, if you know that story. Different guy. This Ananias, verse 13, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Now what we learned earlier in the book of Acts is that Ananias was not really all that pumped about going to have this interaction with Saul. Right? So Ananias is in his house. He lives in Damascus. He's awakened in the middle of the night with a vision says, hey, Ananias, yes, God, there's a guy that I'm sending, and I want you to help him out a little bit, he's going to be over at this house on Straight Street, and I want you to go over there, Um, he's blind, um, and he can't see anything, and I'm going to use him to reach the whole world uh, with my gospel, Um, but you need to, you need to go over and pray for him, because he can't see right now, oh, and by the way, Ananias, his name's Saul, And Ananias is like, "Um, God, I don't know if you've heard about about this guy Saul, but he's a bad guy. Like, I don't, are you sure? Did I hear, is our connection, is there static here? Like, what's, what's happening, right? He's going, and there's this actual interaction with Ananias where he's going, seriously? Right, I mean, picture this. Picture that you are a Jew in 1940 in Austria. And you've been, you've been, you know, kicked out of your city, a bunch of your family and friends have disappeared because you're a Jew, and in the middle of the night you have a dream, hey, uh, there's this this guy, I want you to go pray for him, because I'm going to use him to save the Jews, by the way, his name's Adolf Hitler, right, what would you be thinking, man, that pizza was bad last night, what was that, right, I mean... Like, this is a bold thing. So God uses not just this miraculous experience, but he also uses the the faithfulness, the obedience, the courage of one of his people to go and to do this. This is incredible boldness, right? Ananias realizes who this is, and so for him to risk his life and to do this. That's what God uses. God, God, here, here's what I hope happens for you. I hope that if this hasn't happened yet, that something significant will come into your life to help you realize how much you need the Lord. And then I pray that an Ananias will follow and will come to you and will help you see what you really need to see. To help you see that your blindness is not just physical, but spiritual. That's what God used. Well, how is Jesus Paul's treasure? He begins to say that in verse 14. Verse 14 it says, And he said, This is Ananias speaking to, to Paul, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. The God. Of Paul's fathers, the God that he thought he had been serving this whole time, he realizes was just a God of his own imagination. And the one true God, the righteous one, he's gonna get to see him. He's gonna know his will. He's gonna hear from him. That's powerful. And he says, verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. You're gonna go tell of everybody. You're going to do this. You're going to let everybody know of what Christ has done. Verse 16, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Why does Paul treasure Jesus? Because in Jesus, he actually gets to see the righteous one. He actually gets to know God. And he gets to have his sins washed away. And notice, it says, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The the way it works there is is that we see what, calling on his name is the way you wash away your sins. It's not fundamentally about baptizing, right? Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward truth. There's nothing magical about these waters, right? So like, oh, now I'm blessed. This water is so holy and good, and I should splash some of it on my face, right? Because now, I, oh, now I'm not blessed anymore. Oh, blessed, not blessed, right? That's, there's nothing about the water. The water is not magical. But what it does is it does symbolize a deep spiritual truth. So when a person goes down into the water, just like Jesus Christ went down into the grave and then was raised up, and, and, and the water cascades down around them, it's a symbol of cleansing, but the cleansing happens in the heart by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. And that's the Jesus that he calls on now. The Jesus that he was persecuting as he's trying to get rid of the name of Jesus. He's trying to exterminate Christians and now Jesus ironically says, it's going to be your job to go tell everybody in the ends of the earth who I am. To proclaim the name of Jesus. That's why he's the treasure. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Paul knew that. And then lastly, how is Jesus changing Paul's life? Well, look at verse 17. He says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said... Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. We're Gentiles just means non-Jews. A Jewish person, especially someone of Paul's magnitude, would have taken a lot of pride in being Jewish would have taken a lot of pride in following the religious structures and eating the right foods and and particularly staying away from dirty Gentiles. And now Jesus says, Paul, I'm going to send you to the people you find most disgusting. And you're going to proclaim my name there. And it's as he did that, as he goes... And as he begins to experience all the, the hardship of going into places and telling people about Jesus and seeing churches planted and carrying the burden of those churches being healthy and strong and all the things that he carries, he describes a bunch of them in 2 Corinthians 11. As he carries all of that weight, Jesus is changing him. Jesus is changing him from being self-sufficient to being God-dependent. From being proud at his own religious zeal being humble at his total need for grace that's what god uses to change him now if you were to have an experience like this with god and you were to share your story if we were to get up here uh, you would probably our our answers for the first two and the last thing of of what your life's like without him uh, how he took hold of your life and then how he's changing your life that would all be very different because each of us are very different but, but the, the one that has the most commonality for everyone that would treasure Jesus is why we treasure Jesus. Now there's specific things as we get to know him that we just particularly love about him in unique ways. But there's, there's some things, there's some reasons why we should treasure Jesus. And some reasons why Paul treasured Jesus. And so I want to finish there. I want to finish in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, You can turn there if you want. We'll look at this for a moment. Uh, We'll put this on the screen as well. Page 981, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, telling them to watch out for certain people uh, who are like him. Certain religious zealots who say it's all about following the rules. It's all about the law. In this case, it would have been all about circumcision. Watch out for them. And then he's going to go into this autobiographical explanation of of why he treasures Jesus so much. So he starts off, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These false teachers, much like Paul was, were saying in order to become a Christian, you have to first become Jewish. Anybody know if you're a man how you get Ju- how you become Jewish yeah Abraham got it when he was 99 ow right it's <laughs> circumcision right? and so that's why when he says in verse 2 he goes you know what this is just mutilating the flesh this has no value because we are the circumcision we're the true circumcision the true sign that you're set apart is the spirit of God in you in verse 3 he says but verse 4 Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes, okay, these these false teachers, they want to tell you what a great resume they have. Mine's better. And it really is. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's describing himself. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You want to be more zealous than me? Sorry, I'm the most zealous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was serious about trying to keep the law, serious about trying to honor God in the misguided way that he was, thinking it was all about what he could do and how he could perform and how he could have this great pedigree, right? And so he's able to list this. How how does Paul feel about that now in light of the grace that he's received? Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing to Paul was more valuable than knowing Jesus and having a connection and a relationship with him. And he spent his entire life and his entire ministry building that. And for Paul, having a relationship with Jesus was not saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you if everything in my life goes great. If I'm healthy, if I have a lot of money, if I have a lot of status, if I'm well-liked. He's saying, no, I I just want to know Jesus. And then look at what he keeps saying. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And get this. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know what he's saying? He's saying nothing is more valuable than knowing Jesus. Not my comfort. Not my easy life. Not success. I am willing, gladly to suffer for his sake. I want to share in his suffering even if it will make me more like him. That's how valuable Jesus is. When we talk about being gospel-centered, where that begins for us as a people and where that continues is the idea that Jesus is your treasure. I generally don't even like to ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? I'm guessing most of you go, yeah. Do you believe in George Washington? Yeah. But, but, but to believe in him in sort of this kind of 21st century, like, yeah, I believe that. That's not what the Bible means by belief, by the way. But the Bible means treasure. To treasure him. Is he the treasure buried in the field that when you find it, you give up everything in order to have that field? And if you've never seen Jesus that way, I'm so praying that you would. And if you have seen Jesus that way, but your heart is starting to drift into other things, be they religious things or worldly things, would you see that Jesus and knowing him is better than anything? That's what I love about Paul here, is even in this story, we're, we're not trying to make a big deal of him, we're trying to get to know him because he's going to teach us for the next seven weeks, but, but even he is just going, I'm just a mirror to reflect you and to point you and to show you him and even this morning as these four uh, women are baptized here this morning they're here not to make a big deal of them but to make a big deal of him he's the treasure amen Amen. let's pray together Um, god we thank you so much for the gift of grace we thank you for peace that we have in Jesus that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that we now have peace with God because of what you've done Lord as we study uh, first Thessalonians over these next weeks I pray that we would be rooted uh, even more deeply in this gospel of grace God I pray for those who are here today and you have dropped a boulder in their life it's really painful it really hurts and they feel like they'd give anything to have it go away. God, I pray that you wouldn't waste that experience, but that you would use it to draw them closer to you, to see, help them see that you love them, that you care for them, and that you're good. God, I pray that you would surround them with Ananias-type people who will speak the truth and step out boldly and courageously to love even when they're not sure what to do. And God, as we celebrate now who you are in this moment of baptism and the new life that you bring, I pray that this would be a great celebration for us, a great time of rejoicing and singing and shouting and cheering and delighting in your great news. Thank you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Well, most weeks here,